You know, everybody always loves my Cooperisms. If you ever, if you know the Cooperisms, that's one of my twins. He's got his own little stories, and we always share the Cooperisms. Um, this morning's a little bit different. I've got a, a Deaconism, if you would. Deacon is our little one. She's about to turn five in December, and um, this is probably one of the most proud dad moments of my life. Everybody knows, if you know me, that we're in the greatest time of year. It's deer season, right? <laughs> Well, April Lester came and she wanted to spend some time with Deacon this week. And so she came and picked her up on, I think it was Monday or Tuesday. And um, so she went and hung out with her after school. And, and this is how you know that this is my child. Um, if you know anything about April, she, everything she cooks is from scratch, which really gets on my wife's nerves. Um, so she's cooking chicken noodle soup. I thought chicken noodle soup was a can opener and you open it and pour it out. It, some of us like to add water, some don't. That's kind of the, the difference. So April and her little home, Betty Homemaker spirit, she goes and buys a whole chicken. And so then she shreds this chicken up. And so she pulls the chicken out of the bag and she begins showing Deacon all the parts. And Deacon asks her, April, who killed that? Y'all didn't get it like first service. They thought it was a lot funnier. <laughs> So see, if I was doing a third service, we wouldn't even do that joke because it didn't land well with y'all. So anyway, but my walls are down now. I'm in about second gear, so we can just keep moving, all right? So today, look, we're gonna start out a lot different. You're thinking, no kidding. Um, I'm talking about from what we're gonna look at in the scripture today. We're gonna start out um, looking at three geographical elements, if you would. But one thing that the Holy Spirit showed me this week through these three locations as to how that even in God's creation, these three things that we're gonna look at in the scripture help us paint the picture of what we as a body of Christ are supposed to look like. And so we're gonna be looking, um, for some of you, this may be your first time here, you may, um, this may be your fourth time, but we've been going through, um, we've, we've looked at our mission statement, which you've, you've probably already heard it this morning, but our mission statement here is to saturate the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Very simple, that's what we do. That's what we're called to do as Chestnut Mountain Church. But there's four pillars that we've been looking at over the last three weeks that, that kind of support this. And all four of these pillars is what gets us to the place where we can saturate the world with the good news. And so right quick, we're gonna kind of review for those who have been here. We'll see if you've done your homework. Um, first service, they, they got a 100, man. They all got check boxes in their box, send the notes home to mom and dad, and mom and dad are happy, okay? But our, our vision statement here is that we are a community of believers found in Christ, established on Christ, making disciples of Christ, and sending disciples for Christ. Now look, we're not asking you to memorize that whole thing because I know if you're like me, North Hall education, that would be a little tough, okay? I would have to have flashcards and everything. So look, four words is all we're asking you to wrap your mind around, okay? And these are the four words that we've practiced the last four weeks. Are you ready? Some of you are going, oh, I gotta get my notes from last week so I don't sound stupid here. Are you ready? Found. We'll try it one more time. That was not loud enough. Are you ready? Found. Praise God. And so today we're gonna to be looking at sending disciples for Christ because sending disciples for Christ is our last pillar, but this is what gives us the ability 
to saturate the world with the good news of Jesus Christ is when we are sending. And so we're gonna look at these three bodies of water. I've actually even got a visual today. We've got a map that we're gonna be looking at that'll kind of help you get the visual of what, what, um, what, what it looks like. And so Rachel, if you'll go ahead and pull that up and that way it'll be there for us to reference. But these three bodies of water that we're gonna look at are the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, and the Dead Sea. Now, what's interesting is we're just gonna walk through some of the facts and I think you will be able to start putting the pieces of the puzzle together of this picture that I feel that we're trying to paint and I feel that God wants us to see in these bodies of water. The Jordan River, as you can tell on the map, it starts in northern Israel and it's what feeds the Sea of Galilee. And then after it feeds the Sea of Galilee, it exits on the southernmost tip of the Sea of Galilee and it travels 75 miles south to where there it feeds the Dead Sea. Now, what's interesting about the Jordan River is we read about it some 200 times in scriptures. And most of the places that we read about the Jordan River, it always involved miracles, it always involved healing. And so what we know about the Jordan River, it was looked at as a life source. So much that, did you know that even in today's society that 90% of the water flow from the Jordan River is even being diverted for domestic and agriculture use. 90% of the water flow is still being diverted because everybody wants some of it because it's bringing life to whatever it comes in contact with. The Jordan River, we know that it was a famous place for being the place where the Israelites crossed over into the promised land. But basically what we know about the Jordan is that every time it's mentioned, it's usually speaking of bringing life, which explains why 90% of the flow is being diverted. Everybody wants some of this life source. Everybody wants some of what the Jordan River has to offer. But then what it does is we can see the life that it brings when we look at the first body of water that it fills, and that being the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is the largest freshwater drinking lake, if you would, in northern Israel. This lake is some 13 miles long and eight miles wide. But what's interesting about the Sea of Galilee is what surrounds it is a, a booming economy and, and cities that are flourishing. What makes the Sea of Galilee famous is the, the fisheries and the markets that are known throughout the Roman Empire. And we all know that the story, this is the place where the disciples, they were on the lake fishing and they'd fished all night. They had caught nothing. And Jesus tells them, hey, pick up the net and throw it on the other side. We know that the nets ended up ripping because of the amount of fish that they caught that night. And so we also know that this is in the, nother, in the northern shore is where Jesus shared the Sermon on the Mount. But what's interesting and what really sets the Sea of Galilee aside is what exits the southernmost tip. If you see the Jordan River exits the southernmost tip, where like I said earlier, it travels 75 miles south to where it feeds the Dead Sea. Now the Dead Sea is the polar opposite of the Sea of Galilee. In that, when you look at the Sea of Galilee, there's life. There's an abundance, there's health. But then when you look at the Dead Sea, the name is pretty self-explanatory. 
The Dead Sea sits some 13 to 1500 feet below sea level. It's at the earth's lowest point. But where it gets his name is that the Dead Sea is completely void of life. It's completely void of life. There's no fish. There's no seaweed. There's no plant life. And many people say the only thing that does grow in the Dead Sea is bacteria. Bacteria is the only thing that can grow in the Dead Sea. But what's interesting about the Dead Sea is did you know that even today it is one of the most, um, it's still a modern day tourist site. People flock to the Dead Sea because of this, this phenomenon. And we know that it is overwhelmed with an abundance of salt. The content of salt in it allows the human to step into this water and basically lay on their back and suspend themselves with no effort whatsoever. It keeps them afloat on its own. Now, I don't know about you, but that's worth me going because I sink like a sack of rocks. I remember I used to get so mad when I would take swimming lessons because they would say, just relax. I can't relax. If I relax, I'm gonna be on the bottom. But in the Dead Sea, I'm believing with everything in me that even I could float. And so, but people are coming from all over the world to see this tourist attraction. But you know what makes the Dead Sea the Dead Sea is not what's filling it, but what is it doing with what's filling it? You see, the Dead Sea is also has two other names. And the two other names of the Dead Sea are the Terminal Lake and the Closed Lake. And the reason being is the Dead Sea retains everything that is poured in it. The Dead Sea retains everything that comes into it and there is no outflow. There is no exit. And what is so detrimental about this is because of there being no exit, because of there being no overflow, that every single year the water is forced to evaporate. And even today, every single year, the water level of the Dead Sea drops three feet. So what does that tell us about the Dead Sea? It's just a matter of time and it won't be in existence. But again, remember, the lake is not dying because of what's feeding it. The lake is dying because of what it's doing with what's feeding it. And that's absolutely nothing. And so I think the picture that the Holy Spirit revealed to me is we see a painted picture of two different churches. We see a picture of two different churches is one focuses on what's coming in instead of what's going out. The one church becomes so consumed that they wanna be just like the Dead Sea and their number one objective is to basically become a tourist site. 
We just want to create an environment where people will come just to see what's going on. But what is so sad is there's so many churches that are creating an environment that everybody's coming to see what's going on and they're not challenged to do anything and they're able to come in to attend, lay flat on their back with no effort whatsoever and church comes nothing more than a tourist attraction. Did you hear what happens to the Dead Sea when nothing's going out? It dies. It goes away. It evaporates. And by everything in me, church, I will not be a part of a church that is not challenging the people to go and to love and to serve and to saturate the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be a church where people come just to float. I don't want to be a church where people come just to to dry up. But then on the flip side, you have another church represented by the Sea of Galilee. A church that is sending. A church that is providing life to its community. And what I would love, my heart, again, hear me when I say this, it's not about people coming to see, but I wanted to be providing life in our community and our world around us that people are attracted, not to us, but they're attracted to the movement of the Holy Spirit of God. And people say, that's something I want to be a part of. You just heard just a moment ago, Greg shared in the water, their first Sunday here was Send Sunday where we sent out 600 missionaries last year to go and feed over 2,500 people. I didn't preach that long. So it ain't got nothing to do with me why the Holy Spirit of God led them here, but they wanted to be a part of saturating the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. But the problem is, especially, we'll just go ahead and call it what it is, The enemy has tried to do everything he has ability to do in this season that we've walked through starting in March. Because in so many places, because of the virus, so many churches have had to turn internal just to make sure we survive. But praise God, I serve a God who's not about survival. He's about thriving. And that is why through this season, church, we've grown because we've been looking out. We've been trying to figure out, yes, things are gonna look different, but God, how do we continue to saturate the world with the good news? And God has provided us beyond our imagination of opportunities and doors that just continue to open. But the problem is, is church, the enemy has tried to make the church become so focused on seeding capacity that we have forgotten about sending capacity. I wanna be about not how many people are coming here on Sunday mornings, but we've gotta flip the perspective. Let's stop counting how many people that were drawing here on a Sunday morning and let's celebrate how many people we're sending out on a Sunday afternoon. That's what ascending church looks like, is that we are challenging, that we're equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. 
And this is what sets up the stage for our fourth pillar of sending disciples for Christ. Sending disciples is the very way that we're going to saturate the world with the good news. We're gonna be looking today in Acts chapter six and seven. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to flip there. Um, We're just gonna look in two different places. Acts chapter six and seven, um, just to sort of give you the context so that you'll understand why we're looking at this particular passage and why the Lord has led us in this direction. But Pentecost has already happened. The church is absolutely exploding. The number is being added to every day of people that are surrendering their life to Jesus Christ. And the church has grown at such a rapid rate, the 12 apostles can't keep up with it all. And so we know that there's some, some complaining that has started because just for lack of better words, there's some ministry that has sort of slipped through the cracks. Because of the, the vastness of the church growing, they've not been able to keep their hand on everything. And so the complaining has started that the widows have been forgotten about, that the distribution of food has been forgotten about. And so what the 12 apostles decide to do is we're gonna read it in just a moment, but they gather the congregation of the church together and they said, okay, here, look, here's what we're going to do. And so I want you to read with me in verses two through four of chapter six. Verses two through four in chapter six of Acts. It's so, so the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see, I know that probably for most of us, when we read that, this is where what you and I would know as the modern day deacon was introduced. This is kind of when the the idea of being a deacon was introduced to help partner with the staff, to help partner with the pastor so that they could serve the body. But but what God laid on our hearts about this is what we know is this is is very pivotal in that this is the first time we see ministry being distributed among the people of the body of believers. This is the first time that the apostles have said, look, we can't do all this. So our role now is to empower you, the congregation, to do the works of the kingdom. And just like we read in Ephesians, it's to equip the saints for the work of the kingdom so that we see the kingdom grow. And so I want you to hear that when, I, when you hear me say that. This is what the Sea of Galilee represents. We're about to see these apostles bring a body of believers together. They're going to commission these seven and send them out for the works of the ministry. And so this to me and everything that God has shown me, this is what a thriving church should look like. I had this visual this week of what if every Sunday morning looked like that? In that, not that we're gonna pick seven, because some of you would lay down in your seat and say, oh, I hope you don't pick me this week. Here's the reality. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a a blood-bought believer of the gospel, you're all selected. You're all chosen by God to do the ministry of the work of the kingdom. Every single one of you. But what would it look like on a Sunday morning? Man, if we laid hands on everybody in this room and we prayed and we asked the anointing of the Holy Spirit to come over you, to give you power, to give you strength. And then when we dismissed, you were sent out. What if that was the picture of what God's doing here? 
is that we're not about the seating capacity, but we're about the sending capacity. Because you see, if it's left up to the staff, if it's left up to us to saturate the world with the good news, we're gonna have very minimal impact. And that is exactly what's the reason that the 12 have chosen seven more is because they know that once we select these seven that we can have that much greater of an impact. Nothing's gonna slip through the cracks because we're gonna empower people to do ministry. You know, we're gonna focus now on one of those seven. Some of you probably already know who we're, gonna, who we're alluding to, but Stephen kind of gets the, the rap for being the most popular one of the seven. And what's sad is the reason that Stephen is known is because he was basically stoned to death for his faith. And some of you are going, man, I could be okay without not being known for that. But what's mind-blowing about Stephen, what I, I love about Stephen is how quickly the Lord expanded his ministry. Because remember, he was just selected to serve tables. He was just selected to make sure that the widows were taken care of, to make sure that food was being distributed. But look at verse eight of chapter six. Look how quickly Stephen's ministry grew. In chapter six, verse eight, it says, and Stephen, full of all the skill, full of all the ability, full of all these, does that what it says? No, it says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. You see, this man, because of his obedience, went from being a modern day deacon to being full of power where he was performing great wonders and where he was performing signs that were leaving people in awe. Do you realize that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that is exactly how he wants to use you? He wants to expand your ministry. He wants to expand your impact. He wants to expand your influence. But guess what it has to start with? It has to start with that one little baby step of faith. It has to start with that small baby step of saying, God, I am absolutely scared out of my mind where you're leading me. And God, I have no other choice but to trust you. How many of you are willing to take that first baby step? Now look, Make sure that we don't judge our ministry platform by off the number of people that we get to talk to. That's not what it's about. But God knows exactly where he has you. God knows exactly the people or peoples that he has put in your path that he wants you to saturate the world with the good news with. But understand that God wants to use you the very same way that he used Stephen. He wants to send you out every single day to make his name famous. And I know, believe me, that is the scariest thing for us as a believer to hear. Because in our minds, the enemy crawls up on our, on our shoulder and he says, you'll mess this up. You'll say the wrong thing. You'll lead them down the wrong path. But here's the reality. If you are saved by the grace of God, you have all you need to saturate the world with the good news. 
You have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You have a testimony of redemption. You have a testimony of salvation. And that is what transforms lives. Share your story. Share what you were before Christ. Share your encounter with Christ and share what your life has been like since. You can't mess that up. You may stumble around on your words. Look, I do it every Sunday. Y'all laugh at me. I get excited and I talk fast and I say stuff that doesn't even make sense. I make up words. But I'm believing everything in me that the Holy Spirit of God uses that. Because he's our voice. But you know, we gotta make sure that we don't have a narrow mindset when it comes about sending disciples. Understand that sending disciples is not limited to mission trips. Sending disciples, it's not limited to go weekends that we participated in yesterday where the church puts an event on a calendar and we all put our hands on the plow and we serve our community. It's much bigger than that. It's not a mission trip. It's not a go weekend, but sending disciples of Christ, us being sent is a lifestyle. We are being sent every day. God has given each and every single one of us a platform and all of our platforms look different. But where has God placed you? Where has God placed you? Right now, your platform, your audience may be one. Your audience may be a spouse. Your audience may be a husband. Your audience may be a child. But are you saturating the world with the good news that you know? You see, my position is not always like this. There's a many a day that I miss gym shorts and a t-shirt. This doesn't quite look the same as a PE teacher. But that's where ministry started for me, was in a gym at Davis Middle School. And I remember the day that I got the phone call to be a middle school student pastor. You know, I would love to say that as soon as I hung up the phone, that I celebrated, that I cheered, that I said, yes, God's going to use me now. You know what I did? I cried like a baby because I said, I don't have a clue. God, what does this even look like? What does this mean? But I know it is by the power of the Holy Spirit is the only reason that God's continued to open doors. But here's what I want you to hear. This right here is not the arrival. This right here is no more important than God calling me to be a PE teacher in a gym. This calling here is no more important than where God has placed you in your workplace. And there's that one person that sits in the cubicle beside you that God's entrusted you with to share the gospel. It's all us being called to saturate the world with the good news, no matter what your platform is. But are you being obedient to where God has placed you? And if you are, You can ask Stephen. Well, you really can't. Yeah, that'd be kind of weird. But it's not always going to be easy. Being obedient 
will be, I will go ahead and tell you, being obedient to the Holy Spirit of God will be one of the, if not the toughest thing you've ever done in all your life. Because he's gonna call you to step out onto things you can't see, things that you can't control. But man, when you land it, you have no other choice but to give him the credit for it. And so Stephen faced that very life as his ministry grew. You know, where we're gonna pick up now is in chapter seven. Stephen has just finished what we know as his last sermon. And the reason that we say it was his last sermon is because they were about to stone him to death because of his sermon. Now, look, I get it. Stephen was very bold in what he preached. You gotta understand, he just called this group of guys a bunch of stiff-necked, uncircumcised, ignoring the Holy Spirit. And it really ticked them off. And we read that in this scripture. We read that in chapter seven, verses 54 through 59. And what I want you to do is just, I want you to kind of step there and I want you to kind of visualize everything that Stephen is experiencing. And remember, it wasn't disobedience that took him to this place. It was actually the opposite. It was being obedient to the Holy Spirit that led him to what we're about to read about. Verse 54. Now, when they heard this, this was the group of men that he's just made very, very mad. They were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing. Highlight, circle, underline the word standing at the right hand of God. And then he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the son of man, there it is again, standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven, driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we will later know as Paul. And then they went on stoning Stephen. And as he called on the Lord, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. What I love about Stephen is he died saturating the world with the good news. He was praying for their forgiveness. But being obedient was costly. Being obedient cost Stephen his life. Now look, we live in America. And currently in this day and age, our life is probably not gonna be threatened because of the gospel but it is going to cost us things. It can cost us friends, it can even cost us family. It can cost us jobs, believe it or not. And so I want you to hear that when I say that being obedient is costly. But there's something in this passage that you've probably already heard me emphasize that has always stuck out to me because there's 16 times in the scripture that we hear about Jesus being referenced at the Father's right hand. 
And in most of those cases, it's either speaking of that he's seated at the Father's right hand or that he is at the Father's right hand. But this is one event where it's totally different. As Stephen's about to be stoned to death, we see that it says he gazes into heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what's the significance? What's the significance of Jesus standing at the Father's right hand? Well, we find out the significance when we look deeper into the response of those who are about to stone him. Because as we read just a moment ago in verse 55 that we just read, It says there that Stephen gazed into heaven and it said that he saw Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. But then in verse 56, he speaks about what he sees. Now remember who's surrounding him. These are the men that are are mad, they're gnashing their teeth, they've ambushed him and they're very angry with what he's just preached. And so he has seen Jesus standing at the Father's right hand and now he's telling these men, Now he's telling them, hey, I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. Now, why that is significant is found in the way that they respond. Look at verse 57 again. Now, think about it. He's just said, I see Jesus standing. He's verbalized it. He's told them this. Listen to how they respond. But they cried with a loud voice and they covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse. When I read that, I think of my five-year-old when I tell her to do something that she doesn't wanna do. She doesn't like what I'm saying. So there's a lot of times that she will begin by covering her ears and screaming and yelling because she doesn't wanna do something. So we see these men, now all of a sudden, they're just having a heyday. They're really thinking they're tough stuff. They've heard Stephen offend them, so they're mad at Stephen. They're bucking up to Stephen. They're acting like they're about to kill this man. Then all of a sudden, Stephen says, I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. And these big macho men went from being masculine, powerful, to all of a sudden, they start screaming, they start crying, they start covering their ears and they run at him. And the reason is, is because they know what it means when Jesus stands up. And the reason they know what it means when Jesus stands up, you gotta remember, these men knew the Old Testament. They knew what the scripture said. So they knew what this was was entailing, that they realized all of a sudden, this whole situation just got a whole lot bigger than Stephen. I want you to flip to Psalms chapter 68. Psalms chapter 68, because here's what came to mind when those men heard Stephen say, Jesus is standing at the Father's right hand. Psalms chapter 68, verse one and two. And then we're gonna flip to Isaiah chapter three, 13, and it talks about the same thing. But Psalms chapter 68, verse one. This right here ought to put chill bumps all over you. Let God arise. Let God arise. 
Let his enemies be scattered and let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. And as wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. Let God arise. Flip to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter three. Isaiah chapter three, verse 13. If you don't wanna flip there, you can look on the screen. It'll be there. But Isaiah chapter three, verse 13, it says, the Lord arises to contend and he stands to judge the people. He stands to judge the people. So now all of a sudden, these men who thought they had this situation under control, He said, we're about to shut this man up. We're about to stone him to death. And as far as the gospel being shared from this man, it will be no longer. But all of a sudden, Stephen says, I see Jesus standing up. You see, what brought Jesus to his feet was the obedience of Stephen. Are we living a life as a follower of Christ? Is our obedience bringing Jesus to his feet? Because here's the truth. If you're you're being obedient, if you're stepping out on faith, if you're being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, doing what God is instructing you to do, guess what? The enemy is going to come against you. He is going to persecute you. He's going to do everything to discourage you. He's going to do everything he can to shut you up. But in that moment, when you're discouraged, when you're at the lowest of lows, I want you to, with everything in you, you gaze towards heaven and you keep in your mind that because of your obedience, Jesus Christ just stood up. Jesus just stood up on your behalf. And so now, You're no longer fighting this battle. You got a savior, the almighty God, who says, that's my child. And I've got my child's back. Ain't nobody more I'd want to have my back than Jesus Christ. And so the coach in me I realized there's a reason that God delivered me from that and it happened in my 11-year-old son's soccer game yesterday as I found myself yelling at the referee. Yeah, God forgive me. But I remember as a coach, there was nothing more exciting. When you're walking the ball up the floor and there's 20 seconds left, you're down by one. Guess what the fans do? They stand to their feet because they want their team to know I'm in your corner. We're here for you. We've got your back. But what we need to realize is as the body of Christ, that look, there's about 20 seconds left. We're running out of time. We've got one last shot. But the beauty of that is Jesus is at his feet and he's saying, I'm in your corner. I've got your back. You keep fighting until this thing is over. You keep fighting until this thing is over. And what gives us the power and the strength to do that 
is what we read in Isaiah chapter 54. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it, but verse 17. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servant of the Lord. This is our heritage. And their vindication is from me, declares, not me, not your mom or your daddy, declares the Lord, declares God Almighty, declares the one who is standing at the Father's right hand. And so church, I say all that to say this, as we send you out this Sunday, this is not a dismissal that church is over, but this is us standing in the starting blocks and realizing that church has just begun. And we're getting ready to send you out. You say, well, Brian, is this a sin Sunday I didn't know about? Well, we better go feed spaghetti. No, this is every Sunday. We're sending you out to saturate the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. If you know the good news, you gotta tell it. But we want to send you out because this is what brings life. We don't wanna be like the Dead Sea. And I believe with everything in me, the church that stops going is the church that will stop growing. And church, we're gonna keep sending. We're gonna keep providing opportunities like Go Weekend. And the only reason we do those is so you just get a taste of it. That you just get a taste of what it's like to saturate the world with the good news and see people respond. And so this morning, I would ask you, as we always do to examine your heart. Number one, ask the Lord, God, where have you placed me as a follower of Christ to saturate the world? God, where is it? Is it in my home? Is it in the workplace? But God, where is it? Now look, here's the truth. Proverbs 3, 6 says, if we acknowledge him, he will direct our path. So if you're asking him where your platform is, you better get ready because he's gonna tell you. And the moment he tells you, guess who it falls on then? It's you. You gotta own it. You've gotta thank God for it. Now look, it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be awkward. It's gonna stretch you. But praise God that no weapon formed against you will prosper. You keep sharing. You keep saturating the world with the good news. But maybe today you need to lay that location down and say, God, it's all yours. Use me where you've placed me. But you know, I would ask this question too, and I know that this has not really been a salvation-driven message, but the reality is, is if you're not a blood-bought believer of Jesus Christ, if you don't know the good news, you have no good news to share. Amen. But the truth is, is that can change today. 
The word of God tells us for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In that moment, the Holy Spirit interrupts your life. The Holy Spirit fills you. Now what you just heard about is good news is now your good news. And once it's your good news, you gotta tell the good news. You see how the process works? What's the braids we gonna, yeah, they, anyway, sorry, I had to bring that up again. But I wanna encourage you this morning, you depend on the Holy Spirit for power. If you don't know him this morning and he's knocking on your heart's door, open the door, open the door. I want you to stand to your feet this morning. Let's just be obedient. God, I pray that as you're moving in this place that we would respond to that movement in Jesus' name. Amen.